Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Friday, August 26th, 2022. It's been 3,102 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 184 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, the Russian armed forces in Ukraine, along with the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republic separatists, have become combat-destroyed and have reached a culmination point. Second, Russian forces remain capable of localized attacks supported by numerically superior artillery fire, but only at the company size or smaller, and unlikely to use combined arms tactics. Third, we assess the risk remains very high for the next 48 hours of more attacks on civilians, civilian infrastructure, and government decision-making centers. Fourth, the Russian disinformation campaign about the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has likely failed outside of their internal audience. United Nations officials are likely seeking an acceptable off-ramp for the Kremlin, similar to the deal reached for grain shipments. Fifth, due to the Russian military reaching a culmination point, and the Ukrainian military appearing to be unable to capitalize on the loss of Russian momentum, we believe the battlefront will remain frozen across Ukraine for the short term. And finally, the initiative will go to the first belligerent who can make brigade or larger-sized combined arms offensives on any front. Let's take a look at our regional updates, starting, of course, with the Donbass region in the slovyansk bilohorivka berestova Triangle. In the morning report, the general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine reported that Russian forces, quote, made an attempt to improve the tactical position near Stari Karavan, end quote. On August 14th, we geolocated and verified a video showing a Ukrainian special operation force fighting in Brusivka, south of Starikaravan. Based on the available intelligence, we've coded Brusivka as contested and believe that Ukrainian forces are now operating on the east of Rajhorodok. Ukrainian forces destroyed the Hotel Donbass in Stakhanov in a rocket attack fired by HIMARS. This is the fourth HIMARS attack on the town and the third hotel-turned-barracks destroyed since July 24th. 
The reports of the attack are coming from residents and occupation officials. Luhansk Oblast Administrative and Military Governor Serhiy Khaidai reported on Telegram this morning that quote. 200 elite military airborne troops of the Russian Federation were killed. End quote. We reviewed photos from the July 24th attack and confirmed that today's images were not recycled to support a false claim. Our assessment here is unchanged from August 18th. We recapped it on yesterday's episode around minute two or three. Looking south. After reporting that the Sixth Cossack Tank Brigade left the Bakhmut area and was redeployed to Donetsk, pro-Russian accounts reported that the brigade was fighting in the Bakhmut area. Private military company or PMC Wagner Group, supported by terrorist elements of the Imperial Legion, fought positional battles near Solidar and Bakhmutska, but did not improve their positions. Private telegram channels for PMC Wagner. Reported that Ukrainian forces launched a counteroffensive that failed, and they were able to take up new positions deeper in Bakhmut. They didn't share supporting pictures or videos, which doesn't align with their operations when they capture new areas. The video they did share was recorded in the wooded ridges several kilometers east of the city. In the Svetlodarsk bulge, Russian forces fought positional battles around Kodema, supported by the Russian air force. Ukrainian positions are heavily reinforced in the settlement and have been an excellent second line of defense after the July 26th retreat from the Vulkhiriska thermal power plant. Our assessment in Bakhmut is unchanged from August 25th. You'll find it in yesterday's episode around minute four. In southwest Donetsk and western Zaporizhia, the Donetsk People's Republic or DNR First Army Corps. Attempted to push through Ukrainian forces on the western end of Pisky into Pervomaiske, they were unsuccessful. There were no other reports of fighting west of Donetsk from any other source. In Mariupol, strong winds carried wildfires outside the city into the eastern district. According to residents, fires were burning in residential neighborhoods, and a school was destroyed. The water system in the city remains destroyed. So occupation officials have no way to control the fire. Areas outside the city that are on fire were mined during the spring siege, so there is no way to dig fire lines or take other measures to stop the spread. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, showed wildfires burning in the eastern districts as reported, and as far east as Azov. NASA firms also indicated significant fires burning north, west, and south of Novoazovsk and near Sidove, as reported on August 24th. Our assessment of the Donbas is the same as it was on August 17th, which we recapped on Wednesday's episode around minute six. On the Azum axis, Russian forces attempted to advance on Dmitrivka and Dolina, but weren't successful. Northwest of Azum, per usual, Russian forces shelled Mospanova, Husarivka, and Shepil, and launched an airstrike on Zaliman. Clear weather on August 24th provided excellent images of the Azum area, taken from the Sentinel-2 satellite. The wet crossing southeast of Shapil, established by Ukraine in early June, is still intact. 
There were many thermal anomalies in the western region of Sherwood Forest, the nickname given to the forested area west of Izum by Russian soldiers. The hotspots are consistent with fighting and not naturally occurring fires. Our assessment of the Izum axis remains the same as it was on August 8th. We last recapped it on Tuesday's episode, coincidentally, around minute 8. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Looking now at the Dnipro, Kherson, Mykolaiv, and Zaporizhia regions. In Kherson, Ukraine struck the Kachovka and Antonovsky bridges again with rockets fired by HIMARS. Video from the Antonovsky bridge showed severe damage less than 24 hours after the structure was reopened to heavy traffic. Russian forces are attempting to build a bridge using barges adjacent to the structure and have completed approximately 600 meters. Russian state media video also showed that Russian forces continue to use civilians as human shields. Mixing military and civilian traffic on the makeshift ferry boats, they're operating using bridging pontoons and bridge tugs. The general staff reported that Russian forces advanced on Blahodatne using reconnaissance and force, but did not clarify if it was the Blahodatne in Mykolaiv or Kherson. Both are on the line of conflict and about 30 kilometers apart. Pro-Russian social media account Rybar only reported shelling around the Blahodatne in Mykolaiv. The Russian Ministry of Defense didn't report on fighting in Kherson, and the open-source intelligence community was in debate. Operational Command South reported that a Russian ammunition depot was destroyed in Blahodatne, likely a small cache brought into the one in Mykolaiv. A quick editor's note. See, this is why I have trust issues. I'm not going to call which one it is. Take your pick. If you forced me to arbitrate, I would guess the one in Mykolaiv. Anyway, the General Staff and Operational Command South reported heavy shelling and rocket fire along the entire line of conflict. Our assessment in Kherson is unchanged from August 14th. We recapped it on Tuesday's episode around minute 9 or 10. Moving on to Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia. On August 25th, which was yesterday, the 750-kilowatt high-voltage line that connects the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant to the Ukrainian power grid was disconnected. Because of the failure, the two operating reactors went into emergency shutdown and behaved normally. The diesel-powered backup generators turned on to continue to supply internal emergency electrical power to plant operators. The initial outage knocked out power in Zaporizhia and Kherson. Power was briefly restored, but failed a second time. Engineers connected a 330-kilowatt service line from the nearby Zaporizhia thermal power plant, restoring power to the nuclear plant. Later in the day, the 750-kilowatt line was also restored. All six reactors are disconnected from the power grid. The International Atomic Energy Association released a statement about the incident, saying, quote, 
A secure off-site power supply from the grid is essential for ensuring nuclear safety. This requirement is among the seven indispensable nuclear safety and security pillars that the Director General outlined at the beginning of the conflict. Today's powerline event comes after a series of shelling incidents this month in the area of the ZNPP that caused some damage at the plant and sparked deepening concern about nuclear safety and security at the facility, which is controlled by Russian forces but remains operated by its Ukrainian staff. End quote. Director General of the IAEA Rafael Mariano Grossi said, quote, Almost every day there is a new incident at or near the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. We can't afford to lose any more time. I'm determined to personally lead an IAEA mission to the plant in the next few days to help stabilize the nuclear safety and security situation there. End quote. Yevin Yevtushenko, the head of the Nikopol District Military Administration, appealed to residents of the town and all the surrounding communities on the banks of the Kachovka Reservoir to avoid malls, public places, and open areas. For almost two months, Nikopol has been subject to relentless shellings and rocket attacks. Pro-Russian social media account Rybar reported that Russian troops again shelled Nikopol and Marinets. Let's talk about the Cherniv and Sumy region. Dmitry Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that Russian forces shelled the settlements of Shalikhin, Seredina Buda, Khotin, Bilopilia, and Velika Pisarivka. The governor reported thermite was used on Shalikhin and Seredina Buda, burning down a home and recently harvested hay, and causing spot fires in forested areas. Operational Command North reported the settlements of Chai, Zalizny Mist, and Hirsk in Cherniv were shelled by Russian forces firing from across the international border. Officials reported the use of thermite, which sparked a forest fire in a nature reserve. An editor's note here. The official report claimed that white phosphorus was used. That is highly unlikely, and thermite is frequently confused with white phosphorus. Thermite looks like a firework and slowly descends, while white phosphorus drops fast, tends to have an orange glow as it falls, and produces large amounts of white smoke. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. In the coming month, Spain will be delivering the weapons system promised to Ukraine in June— Equipment includes Shorad-Aspide air defense systems, M113 armored personnel carriers, and artillery shells. The Wall Street Journal reported that the United States Department of Defense would assign a general to oversee Ukraine's military assistance and training operation programs. This yet-to-be-named commander would oversee the almost $3 billion in military aid announced yesterday. After a week of political theater for claiming an earth-shattering announcement would be made by the Russian Duma, President Vladimir Putin signed an order adding another 137,000 troops to the active military for the 2023 calendar year. On paper, the decree boosts the size of Russia's armed forces to just over 2 million, including 1.1 million service members. 
on paper. When Russia launched its wide-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, it was already understaffed, with an estimated 850,000 service members. Russian military recruiters will miss their goals in 2022 and find it increasingly difficult to find volunteers willing to fight in Ukraine. Assessment here. This announcement will not impact ongoing military operations in Ukraine until the spring of 2023, if ever. In the late spring of 2022, the Russian Ministry of Defense gutted its military training staff and officers from the Armed Services Academies to serve in Ukraine. The lack of skilled instructors and the loss of over 1,000 officers since February 24th will produce lower-quality service members over the next two years. It is unlikely Russia will achieve its military staffing goals through 2023. The Kremlin rejected suggestions this was part of a broader mobilization. It maintained the claim that only volunteer contract soldiers are involved in the, quote, special military operation, and no conscripts are used. There is a report that the Russian 22nd Separate Guard Special Purpose Brigade, or Spetsnaz, was sent by the main directorate of the General Staff of the Armed Forces of the Russian Federation, or GRU, to quell an uprising of the PMC Wagner Group aided by the 10th Spetsnaz Brigade. The conflict erupted at the main Wagner training base in Ukraine and reportedly turned into a firefight between the 22nd Spetsnaz and the 10th Spetsnaz supported by Wagner. What's more shocking is the 10th is part of the GRU, forcing the intelligence agency to turn to an outside special forces unit to quell the conflict. Shifting to assessment, we don't have information about the trainees or if they were involved, and there weren't any reported casualties. We don't know if the trainees were from Russian prisons and part of the new penal units, terrorists with the Imperial Legion, or regular Wagner mercenaries. We can't confirm the complete veracity of the report, but even if half true, it indicates a collapse in command and discipline. This is not the first report of Russian units shooting at each other due to personality conflicts or the distribution of looted materials. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is minor graphic detail in today's report, and if you're sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. A rocket attack on Lebyazhe, 60 kilometers southeast of Kharkiv, left one woman dead and her husband injured. The house took a direct hit in the attack. In Orihiv in Zaporizhia, a city almost leveled by Russian artillery fire since March, a 17-year-old boy was killed during an attack. He was found alive in the rubble, but died while transported to an area hospital. In Chapline, they have already started to bury the dead from the August 24th attack on a train station that killed 25 and left 31 wounded. The father of an 11-year-old killed in the attack wept as he finished preparing his son's body for burial, the crater from one of the missile strikes adjacent to the remains of his home. Our favorite FSB colonel, wanted war criminal and Kremlin pariah Igor Gherkin Strelkov, 
was unhappy with the Verkhysetsky District Court decision to release Yevgeny Roisman under an agreement that he is banned from certain activities. Roisman was arrested yesterday under the so-called Don't Say War laws for, quote, discrediting the Russian armed forces. He was released from custody and has agreed not to attend public places and events and not to communicate with any witnesses. Roisman is facing 10 years in prison in a legal system with a 99% conviction rate. Strelkov, one of the most vocal critics of the Russian armed forces, condemned the decision in a screed on his Telegram channel, saying, quote, If even such a frank, influential, and consistent enemy cannot at least be driven into a pretrial detention center, then how will mass gatherings of his like-minded people be stopped in the near future? This is a pure provocation invitation. Rebel, speak out. Nothing will happen to you for a peaceful protest. End quote. Strelkov had his brush with Russian authorities the day after he called for the execution of the Politburo, thinly-veiled statement pointing to Moscow leaders, and to paint the Kremlin in the colors of the Ukrainian flag. He was arrested trying to slip into Ukraine, and his FSB alias was outed by Russian authorities after his detainment. Strelkov was released without charges. An editor's note. Comrade Strelkov, are you ready to go to the hard labor camp with Roisman as a fellow enemy who discredits the Russian armed forces? We'll miss your posts on Telegram. Moving on to geopolitical news. On August 24th, India, for the first time, voted against Russia in the United Nations Security Council on a matter involving Ukraine. The Russian UN ambassador attempted to block Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's participation in the hearings about the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, claiming it was a procedural violation because Zelensky would be required to attend in person. All members, except for China, voted down the demand by Russia, including India. China abstained from the vote. Prime Minister of Ukraine Denis Schimmel will meet in Germany on September 4th with German President Frank-Walter Steinmeier. Information about the agenda has not been announced. Relations between Germany and Ukraine were icy at the start of the war. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz visited Kiev in June, touring Bucha and Irpin. Less than 48 hours later, he removed multiple roadblocks for previously promised military aid. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine has summoned the Apostolic Nuncio to Ukraine, Archbishop Visvaldas Kulbikas, to protest Pope Francis's statement about the death of Daria Dugina. The Holy See's statement on August 24th raised eyebrows when he said, quote, I think of the poor girl who was blown up by a bomb that was under the car seat in Moscow. The innocent are paying for the war. End quote. And finally, in economic news, the ruble remains unchanged, with an exchange rate of 60 rubles for one U.S. dollar. Oil dropped in trading, with WTI crude falling to $93 a barrel, and Brent inching down to $101 a barrel. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline dropped to $2.84 a gallon, or 75 cents a liter. Chicago SRW wheat futures dropped to 79 cents a bushel for December 2022 delivery. 
And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.